Welcome to Zimmerman Podcast, Episode 10. Today, I'm chatting with Tanya Faulkner, the creator of Le Grand Cortage Sparkling Wines. While there's obvious crossover between myself in the wedding industry and Tanya in sparkling wine, today Tanya and I focus more on the overlap we have in creating powerful brands, turning passion projects into actual monetized businesses, reverse engineering creative ideas, and how to define your destination so you can plan your journey. Tanya has so much wisdom to share. Whether you're an entrepreneur or just someone trying to create an intentional life, this episode is a cannot miss for you. I don't want to waste another second, so let's dive in. Welcome to the Zimmerman Podcast with your host, CEO, wedding professional, educator, and mom, Jessica Zimmerman. In just two years, Jessica went from facing bankruptcy to taking home a six-figure salary. She turned a business-saving $100,000 loan into a million-dollar empire. As a creative entrepreneur, a healthy work-life balance seems just as unattainable as a six-figure income. But Jessica Zimmerman is here to show you it's possible. With the right tools and insider tips and some hard work, your craziest dreams can become your daily routine. If you set some boundaries and commit to healthy changes, you can create a business and a life you love. So let's make your business work for you. So I have Tanya Faulkner with me here. She is the CEO of Le Grand Cortage, the amazing sparkling wine brand. Tanya is a serial entrepreneur like so many of you. When I first asked Tanya if she wanted to be on the podcast, I showed her the topics I wanted to cover for this season, one of them being about annual planning. And she immediately knew she wanted to chat about this with me. So we're going to talk about how to intentionally plan for success because you can't get where you want to go without a roadmap, especially when the road is taking you to France. Right, Tanya? <laughs> Absolutely. And that's I constantly say that if you don't define the destination, you can't create the roadmap to get there. Absolutely. So tell me about your trip to France as you saw the need to fill a space in the sparkling wine industry. Like what was lacking and how did you identify the need and realize you could do something to fix it and make money? Absolutely. So I was living in San Francisco at the time, which is of course very food and wine centric and you know, Napa's in the backyard and things like that. And I always loved bubbles, drank a lot of them you know, with friends, but in the U.S. it's been so much, you know, weddings, New Year's, I got a raise, but I've always thought that sparkling is the most versatile from a food pairing. And the more I looked around, I was always surprised by the level of traditionalism and lack of innovation in the French category, where it's domain this, chateau that, plain green glass, nothing that really grabs your eye. And so, you know, I started doing research and uh, the more I looked, the more I realized that there really was this uh, gap on both price, palette, and packaging. So obviously this is a saturated industry. I hate when people think they shouldn't do something just because they're entering into a saturated industry, don't you? How did you solve old problems in new ways and present like a different sparkling wine option and market to set yourself apart in the industry? Well, you know, I took those that gap that I saw and those uh, three Ps. And you know, ultimately, when you look at the fact that most Americans still say, I'm drinking champagne, and whether it's Cooks or Andre or Dom Perignon, it's champagne, and there's such an association with champagne in France. So I thought if I could make an affordable French sparkling wine, so we produce in Burgundy, not uh, champagne. So that allows us a little bit more artistic latitude. And uh, at the end of the day, ours is only like $18 retail versus a lot of the champagnes, you know, 50, 60, $100. So I started with a value proposition of how do you make something that's affordable and that you can celebrate or commiserate every day. Uh, secondly, from that packaging standpoint, and probably most importantly, 70% uh, of wine in the U.S. is consumed um, based on packaging alone. So I thought um, I was an architect and real estate developer prior to wine. So I say I used to design buildings. Now I design bottles because when you think about that spot on a shelf, that four inch slot or a um, name on a wine list is very expensive real estate. So what's the compelling proposition to make somebody want to buy you? And then lastly, from a, a palate standpoint, Americans have a sweeter palate than Europeans, as do you know, uh, Asian, African-American, Hispanic. So ours is not a sweet wine, but I stylized it. So it has just a little bit more fruit and floral on the finish. So it's really that palate uh, pleaser for you know, virtually anyone and very cuisine and cocktail friendly as well. 
You know, I love what you said about the four inch space on a shelf. I used to, before I went down the whole wedding industry road, I used to be a manager and a buyer for a kitchen store. And I remember the owner once telling me that it doesn't matter how expensive or inexpensive the product is, that that shelf space is expensive real estate and that you have to pay attention to it and you have to pay attention to what's selling and what isn't selling. You can't just have something on a shelf because it looks good or it's cute or it's eye-catching. It has to be able to do both. And so was branding a big part of carving a new path for yourself? Like how does investing in branding help you craft a cohesive and a consistent brand voice? I think that I'm going to ask you that question. You're going to get to answer it. But I, I do think that a lot of my audience struggles with with branding and what that means. And I always say, you know, a pretty logo does not a brand make, does not a business make. And so tell me a little bit about uh, your your branding path. Well, and I'll answer that question specifically, but sort of I start with the why, because people don't buy what they what you do, they buy why you do it. And, you know, Simon Sinek and a lot of you know others, you know, you can read great books on that that really um, talk about that. But it's like getting at the ethos of why you're doing it, because then it resonates in the hearts and minds. And what's funny, you don't say minds and hearts, you say hearts and minds, right? And so it's like, you've got to speak to somebody at an emotional core. And so when you think about branding, it's everything that you do. It's, it's a logo, it's a package, it's the font, it's color, it's um, the imagery that you use. And like, you're trying to transport people, you know, in a brief second, whether it's an Instagram post, it's a magazine ad, it's a billboard, you know, which we're not there yet. But all of those things, it's like you only have a couple seconds to grab somebody's attention. And going back to what we were just talking about, the um, four inch slot on a shelf or a wine bottle, you know, when you think about you're going down a supermarket aisle, there's thousands of products and, you know, even in wine, there's hundreds. And so what's going to make your um, brand stand out comparative to somebody else? And so it's all this um, subconscious things like people don't, you know, um, really think about every single aspect, but it's, it's asymmetry, it's color, it's the things that stand out that are different. And so, you know, my bottle, I was very intentional about creating something which is timeless and elegant really evokes that feeling of an expensive champagne. But at the end of the day, it's very modern, fresh, uh, clean. I use Tiffany jewelry as my inspiration. And you think about Tiffany, it is it never goes out of style. And whether you're 20 or you're 90, it resonates with virtually every demographic. And you know, when you think about something, I don't want to be a one-time-a-year purchase. I want to be a weekly or a monthly. And so the price point was intentional. But when you really think about, you're trying to elevate the everyday with, or at least that's my intention with wine. And so it's every little tiny detail of the design, every pixel, everything. And so I I think it's so important to covet brand and constantly come back to that with um, your team and don't take it for granted that everyone knows because we all start to miss the mark. And if you don't come back and really talk about it and reinforce it and what it stands for, what it looks like, Hey, it's not okay to use that font. Like even how you dress and how you show up in the marketplace too, that all is a reflection of brand. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. I love that you said that. It's so true. Like you, you are a reflection of your brand if it's your business and you're, you've got to, you know, one of the things we learned with branding when we finally, and you, and you can't do it right off the bat. Maybe, maybe you, you know, you do what you can until you can do more. But when we finally got to work with our incredible brand manager and expert, she you know, created this brand board for us. And it just makes life so simple. It's like, okay, those are the colors we use. Those are the fonts we use. And it, you know, it, I don't know, it just makes life a lot easier. Well, so and, going- and I, and I was going to say, if I may, just on that point, what's hard is when you're brand new, you don't have a ton of money. And so you're just trying to bootstrap it and you're doing it yourself. But there are a few fundamentals that it's like, you know what, if this is going to be your legacy of the brand for the long term there's some areas you should invest more uh, in on the front end. And it's like everything comes back to brand. And so focusing on that early and, you know, some things are happy accents like Nike swoosh. There was a whole ridiculousness of how it actually came to be. And it ended up being this like last minute thing. And I believe an intern or something like that. And, but look at what Nike has now become and what one little symbol resonates for. So, so I think spending more on branding and thinking about uh, it more than people give it credit for on the front end. 
you seem to have a lot of passions going back to, um, you know, architecture and, and real estate and just passion projects. One thing that I always say to my students is you need to decide if what you're interested in is a hobby or a business, because not every single thing that you're interested in has to turn into a money-making business, right? So how do you decide, like when you're someone who you love wine and you love sparkling wine, like how do you decide, okay, this is more than a hobby. This is something that I actually want to turn into business. And while I'm a creative type at the core, at the end of the day, it's like, do I think I can actually make money and really know your numbers? And it's interesting. I'm equally right brain, left brain, um, um, yeah, to, almost to a fault sometimes. But it's like, if you don't have a business plan, if you can't back it up with numbers, then really it should be a hobby and you have to be willing to like dig in. But, you know, I uh, definitely use the term multi-passionate and I used to feel bad about it and feel like, oh, do some people think I have ADD or I'm a little bit schizophrenic, but I really own the fact that I'm you know, innately curious. And I think that some people are entrepreneurs at the core. And um, when, so it's, I think it's coming down to, do I have it in me and in which to spend the next five years hustling and really working hard because there are virtually no overnight successes. It's, you know, 0.5% of businesses where they just skyrocket. And so it's, if, if this is a passion, um, is it something that you're willing to invest, you know, 50, 80, 100 hours a week for a couple years and sometimes just to really get it going? And if the answer is no to that, keep it as a passion or your side hustle. Yes. Yes. You've got to do the work on the front end. You really do. You've got to, you can't just go in. I think so many people, they have an idea or a product or someone says, oh my gosh, that's great. You should sell that. And they just go into the product that they're selling or the service that they're selling without actually knowing their numbers. And, and like you said, having a, having an actual plan. So how do you set goals and then reverse engineer to get the result that you want? Well, even with the brand, um, I often say that I reverse engineered because based upon that gap that I saw with the price palette packaging, I was like, okay, what do I need to create to fill that gap? So even fundamentally at brand and thinking of the very uh, creation of a company, I started there. But then when it comes to a vision plan, or excuse me, a planning for the long term, I actually start with a vision board and it's like dream big, um, put it out there, you know, and then think about, where it is that I'm trying to go, what's that destination, then you create the roadmap, like we were saying at the beginning, it's like, okay, break it down into incremental steps. And I start in early stages as truly it's a brain dump, whether it's just me, or, you know, I ask other people, or if it's you know, with my team, when we launched our second brand, Trey Chic, it's like, do a brain dump, think about the questions, the ideas. Um, and then you know, just put it all on paper, you know, the uh, pie in the sky, the pedantic little details, then set it aside for a couple of days or a week or two and come back and like do another one because things are percolating in the back of your mind. And um, then I think it's really important, um, talk to others and seek criticism. So much of it, we covet our ideas and we don't want to talk about it. And then we find out like, oh, if we had just been more open, like let somebody, uh, yeah, really pick it apart. What about this? What about that? You don't want to just take somebody's like, oh, don't do it because people are always going to say, oh, you shouldn't do that or that's too hard. And, you know, there's a lot of naysayers, but take their questions, their concerns, their feedback and let that influence the decisions on the front end. So, but while you're doing a business plan, get some insights from sort of a trusted little focus group of men and women, because that'll help you um, adjust early on. That is a great piece of advice. And I think too, I always say, don't follow a bunch of people in your industry. And I actually got a really good piece of advice from a friend not too long ago who said, if you're looking to learn something new, for example, for me, looking to learn about podcasting, she said, do not listen to or do not purchase podcast courses from other people in the kind of female creative entrepreneur industry. Go study from completely different industries about podcasting because a lot of times what we find is they might know something better or we want to stand out a little more or 
we just might look at it differently or learn it differently. It's just is such a good education to step outside of our own industry and to learn from other people. And I love what you said too about taking the criticism, which is hard for a lot of people. It's hard for a lot of people. We can be sensitive and it's oftentimes it's our baby, right? I mean, this business was my first baby and, um, and I've got three kids and so I'm, and I'm still saying that. And so it means a lot to me. <laughs> totally. And, and I, I um, often say critique and criticism are your opportunity for correction. And so remove the ego. And if it's said from, especially like trusted people in your network, you know, whether it's friends, family, you know, people in and out of the industry, it's like, if it's said from a place of love and you're like, I trust them, then realize it's like all of those things help you to be successful uh, down the line, really. Yes, 100%. I even say that with my world in the wedding industry, I used to, when I didn't book somebody in the very beginning, if I met with someone who, man, I really wanted to do their wedding and they did not book me, I ended up sending them a survey and asked them questions. because, And I would say, I want to book more people like you in the future. Can you please take two minutes and answer this survey for me so that I can do better and I can start to hire or I can start to reach more people like you? And just if I had gone into that with this perspective of I don't want to know, well, then I'm not ever going to change and do better. Mm -hmm. But some of the things, like one of the things that we received was it was from the mom of the bride. And she said that my contract was hard to read. It was during the time that the watercolor fonts were really in mm -hmm. and I didn't have a specific brand at that point. I was just faking it till I make it, you know, doing the best I can, which sometimes that's what we have to do. I'm not knocking it. I certainly did that as well. And it was as simple as that, as like, I can just change that font. That was the only thing that was bothering her was that she couldn't read my proposal and my contract very well. And she didn't want to be unclear and she didn't want to have to constantly ask in every meeting, what does this say bridesmaids? Is this four or nine? You know what I mean? And I just thought, well, of course, let me change that. I would have never known that mm -hmm. had I not sent that. Well, so that's think such that a great takeaway and it's so silly and simple. But coming back to the, the brand, when you think about... You know, uh, I mean, the female or the wedding industry is very you know, female centric, so it's slightly different. But you think about so many industries that are so male dominated and it's like knowing your audience of your end demographic. But for instance, like I am always presenting to distributors and trade accounts, which are 90 percent men. So we are female centric brand. But the gatekeepers, all the people that are putting it on a shelf or um, on a wine list are almost all men. So I have to think, I'm trying to sell to you people in the wedding industry, like, you know, the female, but understanding who, who's helping influence the decisions and like, all right, pink and light colors and stuff may not resonate. And it seems so ridiculous, but it's like, that's just the gross reality. And whether it's conscious or subconscious, it's being aware of all those little things that ultimately will get to you to yes. No, that's fascinating. I think that's so fascinating. And I think that's why it's so important. And I hope the listeners understand, because you might be like, why are we listening? Why are we having an interview with someone in the wine industry? Because we can learn so much. We can learn so much from someone that is in a different industry. So how did you learn to plan for success? Did someone teach you? Did you read books? Did you take some kind of class? Did college teach you this? Like, how did you figure out your own kind of road for success? Um, well, in the present day, I am huge on podcasts. Like you said, it's like, I'm always listening to lots of things in and out of the industry. And for all entrepreneurs, I highly recommend like, um, how I built this with Guy Raz and some things like that, because you're constantly, um, inspired. It makes you feel less crazy. You see how other people did it and you're like, wow, it just triggers a new idea for me. Or it just you know, lets you see that, it's not easy for anyone and all the trials and tribulations are amazing to hear, but you know, it's sort of interesting. I um, am not what a lot of people, I grew up in a th three street town, 400 people, first person to go to college. Like I don't come from a entrepreneurial family by uh, any stretch. And I was always just innately curious. And, um, you know, I think that, th um, it's about 
being tenacious and, and resilient and learning to diffuse the no. And I, I think from out the gate, like, uh, you know, when I was young, it's like, oh, what college I wanted to go to, what internships I wanted to have. But um, I had a, once had a boss that says no means maybe and maybe means yes. That's what his philosophy was, which at 21, it was very frustrating because he did not believe in impossibilities. But it really taught me that people are so quick to say uh, no and so it's like it gave me the it's like creating the muscle of you need to constantly press but why not what about this yeah you know, how about we try this angle and so i think th- that early um positioning from a boss and it's like go figure it out really gave me a lot of the skills and you know take every job i don't care if it's you know babysitting you work at a um you know an office and you're just doing you know some data entry or you know at, uh, all the corporate jobs you take whatever all along the way it's like developing the toolbox and it's like um i constantly tell people work for a small company because you get so much insights from uh that a to z Versus if you work for this big corporation and you might might be like this phenomenal company, like you know, let's say a Google or something, which is amazing, but you're very siloed. You only see an aspect of the business versus a small company. You get to see every single thing and touch a lot and you really uh, can see the fruit of your uh, labors coming to fruition. And so I just think that that's been one of my um, biggest assets was like being able to work for a few co- small companies that gave me a lot of latitude and more responsibility I deserved early because I was you know, seeking um, the opportunities and you know, expressing that curiosity. My mind's kind of blown right now because I think that that is so incredible just the way you said that. I went from college to immediate, I just always knew I wanted to own my own business. So I immediately went and worked for a very small business and wanted a family run business, wanted to learn. So I, I've kind of always received all of the things but you're right. If you go into a corporate world, you may just be learning one tiny aspect of the business. And I have a team member right now who, man, she just loves learning every, she wants to be on every team meeting because she thinks it's fascinating, you know, to learn all the different parts and how that really is such an education just to work within a smaller company. Mm-hmm. People don't think, and it's like, oh, you know, I've, uh, worked for some big corporations and I felt so frustrated because I think if you're op- an opportunity, excuse me, an entrepreneur at the core, you're like, oh my God, all this red tape and everything takes so um, long, but it also is best practices and they become successful for a reason. And so I think it's good to have both sides and perspectives. And um, Shauna, who's my uh, VP, she used to work at Mandavi, you know, which is you know, one of the uh, biggest wineries um, hands down. And she says, you know, I get to do way more with corporate than I did at Mandavi because it's there aren't different departments for everything. Jessica's always teaching that your time is valuable. So is hers. So to make this podcast possible, we have sponsors. Here's a quick message about something Jessica loves. If you go to Legrand Cortage website at legrandcortage.com, you'll see a stunning website that tells you everything you need to know about Tanya's brand and the products she sells. The truth is, whether you have a product-based business like Tanya or a service-based business like I have with Zimmerman, you need a website that books clients, sells your product, and makes you money. Come spring 2020, I'm releasing a brand new resource that will guide you through creating a killer website that looks and feels like you. When you're done, you can celebrate with a big glass of Le Grand Cortage's sparkling wine. For a Zimmerman-sponsored celebration, head to the show notes for a discounted shipping code. And to find out more about creating your own beautiful website, go to awinningwebsite.com. That's awinningwebsite.com. Hey, are you loving this episode? If you've been listening thinking, oh gosh, I'm so glad I found this. This is exactly what I've been needing. Then I need you to do me a favor. Take a screenshot of this podcast and share it on your social media. I can't reach more listeners like you without your help. And these early days and weeks of the podcast are absolutely crucial to building the listener base we need so that we can keep producing content that is free to you and answers all your biggest business questions. So share this episode, tag me at Jessica Zimmerman underscore, and then get right back to listening. 
have you ever ventured into something new without a plan? And if you did, did you notice a big difference in getting the result you wanted when you set out without a strong plan? For the type A perfectionist, um, I, as a general rule, um, really dig in and analyze. I have taken um, the leap a few times. And, you know, I think, um, you know, it's like parenthood or getting married or what, or starting a business, you're never going to be fully ready. And so I think we have to give ourselves uh, credit too that along the way, like all these tools you know, that we're amassing throughout our life, you know, from childhood to where we are today gives you, uh, the resilience. And it's like trusting in what we innately know is more important. And I think some of that has come with age where it's just that, um, inherent confidence that you gain. That's like, you know what, I can do this. And I think as an adult, you realize too, most people don't have all the answers and on a daily basis, you're just trying to figure it out. And so it's like, if you have the the tools and you're willing to put in the work, you can indeed, um, you know, most things are figure outable right? <laughs> at the end of the day. And it's realizing that everyone, no one has all the answers. I don't care, you know, the head of the corporation, the president, whatever. It's like there's new circumstances and situations in an ever evolving uh, economic landscape, you know, how you market, how you advertise. And so it's like just iterations. And so, you know, I, I um, yeah, like I, I actually moved to Thailand to build a resort um before I moved to France and stuff. And it's like, that was kind of a big uh, leap of faith because, you know, it's like totally different culture, totally unknown. And, um, you know, just, but again, it's coming back to all the things that you've learned along the way that prepare you for that moment. First of all, I want your life for just a minute because <laughs> Thailand, France, like I just, I would, I would love that. Like, let, can we switch for just, just half a second? Um, <laughs> I mean, I am serious, man, that would be amazing. But I love what you said about how every, first of all, I'm over here when you said everything that you just said with my hands up in the air and saying amen silently, because I can't say it on top of you because I want people to hear it, but I'm over here like saying amen because two things. First of all, you're exactly right. Most people are everybody. It's actually everybody. They don't know what they're doing. They might just be a little bit more ahead than you are. They might've had a little bit more experience somehow, some way, even if they're younger than you have had. And so they maybe just seem a little bit ahead, but they're still on their journey where they have a lot to still figure out. And what I loved so much about what you said, and you touched on this earlier, is that everything that you do is getting a new tool for your tool belt, for your toolbox, because you haven't landed where you're ultimately going to land, right? And so everything that we're doing, I'm sure there was something about Thailand that prepared you for, for mm -hmm wine, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think um, you probably see this. It's like you have, um, I think comparison is the thief of, thief of joy. And so often it's like, I wish I could do that. Or, oh, and it's like, suddenly people think you have some special powers. And it's like, look, I'm not a trust fund baby. I'm not any smarter than you. You know, it's like, it's, you're just figuring out and people lack the confidence and they let fear hold them back. And I wrote an article the beginning of the year called three F words, fear, failure, and fraud. And, you know, when you think about so much of that is what holds people back where they're, that's that, um, um, imposter syndrome. Do I have what it takes? They're too afraid of like what it means. Do I have what it takes? Or, you know, do I have enough money? Will I run out? And then that fear of failure. And so I think people just need to like realize that, um, hand period, point blank, no one has it all figured out and they're facing their fears every day too. Oh my God. I want to read that. Where can we read? Oh, I'll send it to you. Fraud? Okay. And I'll put it in the show notes because that sounds so good. And I, I'm a big fan of alliteration. So I just like uh, the, the title even, even more so. Um, okay. So my industry, this is what I hear all the time. You may not hear this as much, but I hear, well, I'm just not a planner. I just kind of like to fly by the seat of my pants. I like to, I like to just go with the flow. Like I want to take these people and I'm a little bit like you. I am divided. I took a, I took a, a, a gifts test not too long ago and they were sharing the results and they said, Oh, this one. Oh, Oh, this one is rare. Like I think in all the years we've ever done this, I've only seen this one other time. It was me. It was mine because my gifts are just 
straight up down the middle. It is, I have got some type A all over the place. And then I also have creative and it sounds like you are a bit the same, but when I hear this, I get it, but, but, but I don't get it because I think you can't have the freedom to do these fun, creative things and to live this creative life without a plan. And it makes me sad for people who, I mean, not sad, but frustrated because I just want to be like, oh, if I could just give you a little bit of that, of that type A personality just for one month out of the whole year for you to get your plan together. Man, life is going to be so much better. <laughs> totally true. Well, it's 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 insane. Well, it, it's like there are a lot of phenomenal ideas, but people suck at implementation. So, they, so many businesses that go out, it's not because they lack for a great idea. It's because they didn't have the right team or they didn't plan. And sometimes it's just money or you know, not the right time, not the right place. And you could have been an amazing planner. But a lot, it's because people really are poor at uh, execution and follow through. And so just, you know, that is a, a fundamental. And, you know, I use the analogy, it's like a, a pilot's flying in the middle of the night. If they don't have the dashboard and instruments to follow, they truly are flying blind. And so you have to be willing to come back to that dashboard because your instruments are what help you get there. So whether it's your numbers, whether it's, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, Nielsen data for, you know, the um, sales on the supermarket shelf, whatever, you have to use data in order to iterate or pivot. And I, you know, always are reminding my team, you can't manage what you can't measure. And it's like, hey, if you're not a planner, then you darn well better make sure you have a partner or hire somebody that is can sure up your weaknesses. And, you know, you were talking about this gifts and the, um, uh, for the personality test. Now, uh, we did one at the team retreat, um, like a year and a half ago. And now when I hire, I actually have somebody take one before they come on board. I said, there's no right or wrong answer, but rather it's recognizing that it takes all personalities in which to make a successful team. So it's really uh, capitalizing on people's strengths and minimizing their weaknesses and figuring out how are they going to be the best fit to the organization, growing the brand, you know, uh, making for a successful business. And so I think it's getting real with what your own strengths and weaknesses are. But if you're not willing to plan, you darn well better have somebody that is. Amen. Oh my goodness. Okay. Every listener out there who heard what you just said knows that I now want to take you out for lunch and I want to buy you a gift and I want to just hang out with you all day because I could not be in more alignment with you talking about strengths. I, I I feel so so much for these solopreneurs who are trying to do it all by themselves because you just can't. You just can't. You're going to be on a hamster wheel. And man, what makes a great company is the amazing strengths of other people. And, and the more strengths that you have, the better that company is going to be. And you've got to recognize your own weaknesses and you've got to hire to your weaknesses. And I also love what you said earlier about your why. And man, we're going to link that YouTube video that Simon talks about his why, because that's such a crucial part. And when you're planning, when we were talking about people who don't take the time to plan, I think we do this every single year. The team and I will sit down and we go over, is this still our why? What went well? What didn't go well? How can we make sure that what didn't go well never happens again? And I think that that video is such a beautiful place to start with. And I want to just let you know right now up front, I'm going to be stealing this from you. I'm going to be taking it. I'm going to be, I, I don't know, I might get it tattooed. I don't know. Because I just, I have never heard it and I love it. You can't manage what you can't measure. Oh, I'm glad it resonated, right? Because it's it's so true. And it's like, uh, and I think too, with the creative types, it's like, oh, I'm not a planner. I don't like details. It's like, you know what? Shift it and see it as a game of like, all right, if I really, if I want to be an artist, if I want to be a wedding planner, if I want all the things that the beauty and the creative things that feed our soul, instead shift and say, if I can learn to appreciate what these measures, the numbers, the planning gives me so that it allows me to be successful in what I really want to do and what you know, it makes me happy, then um, I think by just that subtle, subtle distinction, it helps you realize that it's for the greater good 
rather than seeing it as an annoyance. And with that personality test that we do, um, um, when I give everyone the results, um, I at the very top, I said, everything that irritates us from others can lead to an understanding of ourselves. It's a quote from Carl Jung. And I just think it's so important to remember. It's like, everything that irritates us from others can lead to an understanding of ourselves, right? And so it's like learning to appreciate those other things because sometimes that irritation is because it is what we truly lack. Okay. Talk to me about knowing your numbers. You have a product-based industry and that can necessitate hard numbers more than a service-based industry in some ways. How do you reconcile what you've planned with the numbers you see in front of you and how do you adjust when the numbers aren't lining up with what you with what you've originally planned? Mm-hmm. Um an inventory business is no joke. I'll tell you that. Wow. It's I not c- coming from real estate development. It's like people are willing to lend on dirt and buildings and stuff all day long, but no one really wants to own inventory and have to figure out how to sell it. And so it's been a huge challenge because you end up with a gap between your payables and receivables and being that I produce in France and have 45 days just on water to get from France to California. It creates yeah, massive cash flow gaps. And so um, it's a supply chain and trying to figure out um, cash flow needs is very challenging and sort of you know, talk about needing to be focused on um, all the details and planning. Um, that's you know, imperative in an inventory business whenever, you know, you have to make sure that, you know, you don't have out of stocks and all these things. And so, you know, we, you often get off plan and, you know, coming back to that, you can't manage what you can't measure. It's like weekly, biweekly, monthly, we are digging in and looking at um, a gauge of where we stand so that it's like, I um, have to adjust and plan for both from a product standpoint as well as a number standpoint. And um, if you have investors and you know if you have a banker, I believe in being transparent and uh, talking about it early if you have issues because that builds trust. And it's like projections are just that. And we all aim. And again, if you don't aim high, you're not going to um, grow big. And so I think you all have to be lofty because it's motivating you and your team to try to achieve this you know, bigger goal. But when you are missing plan, uh, if you have outside people involved, communicate that and make sure you understand why and what you're doing to fix it. And sometimes it's like, oh, you know, the you know, economy shifted, there's a new product that came on board, or, uh, you know, there was a hurricane that shut down, you know, the marketplace for uh, three weeks. And so that's why Florida is down or whatever it may, you know, be. Um, but that's where that, you know, that can't manage what you can't measure comes into play. And so really keeping your pulse on things. And so making sure if you're, it's not your forte to understand that, like, make sure that you have somebody on your team that can help with that. But um, it's a you know, constant iteration and adjustment of um, your numbers and trying to make sure that you can plan accordingly so that you don't have to have you know, layoffs of people or things like that, right? It's, it's always, you know, um, coming back to that. Right. And I think what numbers allows you to do is to work smarter, not harder, right? And I think that it's interesting inventory. Oh, inventory. So when I was working at that, at that kitchen store back at the beginning of my, you know, career days, I think inventory became a blessing and a curse, right? It's, it's, you never have what you need and you got to ship it as quickly as you can. And then you, you like having back stock of the things that go well to the point where now, like I always have our garage, we always have back stock of toilet paper, of paper towels, of everything. Like <laughs> my garage is set up like a like a like a back room in a in a in a store because we will we will have back stock. I never want to run out. Um, but I was listening to a radio show the other day of a man who he's a he's a designer and an, an interior designer, a brilliant interior designer, and he designs these tiles that um, are sold at Home Depot. Now he has a manufacturer, right? Who manufactures this product for him. And he was talking on, on this radio show about his frustrations of, he said, when I look at the numbers, 90% of people are buying this one specific design. He said, don't you think the manufacturer would look at those numbers and go, oh, I need to make 
a whole lot more of that design and a whole lot less of these others. He says, the one that everyone wants is always out of stock. And then people have to wait nine weeks for the shipment. And when people go to Home Depot, they're not going there to have to wait. They need it now. It's instant. They're doing a weekend project. And I think, oh my gosh, we've got to get them. I mean, like me in my in my car, just listening to this radio show is like, I mean, we got to get on the phone with the manufacturer. We got to, we got, somebody's got to be reading these numbers. Like that is so much money missed, right? Mm-hmm. It's just, and you probably deal with this too, if you have, now, now I need you to educate me a little bit on your wine business. So you have got, um, do you have more than one? I know you have two lines. I have two wines and and then I have five SKUs in total. So we've got the standard size bottle. And tell everyone what a SKU is for uh, those oh, who don't sorry. know. Um, a, the, the scan bar that you see on a bottom of any product is called a SKU. So it's what scans on the register. Uh, so we end up, we have five different products, um, a Blanc de Blanc and Rosé sparkling wine in the large format standard size, as well as the little mini baby bottles. And then we have a Très Chic Rosé, which is a still Provence style uh, uh, rosé. And so I do all my production in France and then, you know, ship everything to the U.S. Now is a baby bottle, is that something that you look at and go, oh, that seems like other people on the market are doing that. Maybe that's, maybe that's a good thing to have. And then when you see the numbers, is it a good product to have? Do you like, like, cause that's something that's different, right? Uh-huh. Than your, than your normal bottle of wine. Sorry, I don't have all the lingo That's down right. in the wine industry. Sorry, I'm doing the best I can. But but that is a different product. Like, for example, with floral design, we have you have everyday floral, and then you might do a la carte, and then you might do full design. But just because you have a new um, a new service or a new product within that line, that doesn't mean it's always a good idea. But you do need to try it. Mm-hmm. And if it works, it works. If it doesn't, it's okay to say that didn't work and to pull it off the shelf, right? Absolutely. So how do you go about things like that? Well, one, I think uh, to your last point, you need to be able to uh, be willing to fail fast. And so try something and then cut bait if you don't think that it's going to work and you can fairly quickly tell sometimes. But, um, you know, there's counter um, philosophies on, you know, products and things like that. But I personally believe, you know, some things become your loss leaders, right? The, so the one, when we say the baby bottles, they're the 187 kind of beer bottle size, which are of course great for the wedding industry and favors and parties and you know, things like that. But we find that that is great for grab and go at a retail where, you know, that individual size, somebody's like, Oh, you know what? It's only five, six, $7. I'll pick up one of those and go home and try it. Or at restaurants, it's great for buy the glass because they don't have to worry about any waste and the product going flat. And so when we uh, produce the 187s, they are very expensive compared to our 750s. Um, On a value basis, it's not as great for the consumer. Uh, For us, the margins aren't anywhere near as big, but it be sort of, it's that uh, trial. And so it gives you a consumer the opportunity to try it. And because uh, from a branding standpoint, you think every single person that has one of these little mini bottles in their hand, or if they're served the bottle at a wine bar, they're getting the glass and the bottle. And so it's really reinforcing brand. So part of it was trial for me and part of it was intentional branding. And um, out the gate, I knew we needed to make some big wins to sort of put us on the map. So uh I actually started courting Virgin America and thought if I could get my brand on there because um, it's business travelers and young, you know, hip consumers and things like that, it would be really terrific. And Branson's all about taking risk. And so within one year of launching, I started going after Virgin and subsequently, you know, it took about a year to get to yes, but finally they did. And they bought 200,000 bottles of our um small format. And I negotiated first position on the screen and talk about a way to build your brand and put you on the map and that opened doors for distributors. And so long answer to your question, but with the the 187s, it was very intentional of how do I help build my brand quicker, get into uh, airline uh, we're in a lot of hotel mini bars, um, great for weddings, things like that, so that you're getting a lot of touch points because when you're new and small, you can't afford marketing and advertising. So instead, it's like, what's your entree and weight in in order to build brand? That is intentional planning right there. And I always say too, like if if somebody says no, that doesn't mean no. That just means not yet from them or no from no from them, but that doesn't mean no. That just means I'm going to get a yes somewhere else. So I love that you thought outside of the box and it's not just 
getting a print advertisement or something like that. You can think outside of the box of how you can get your your brand, your name, your company out there into the world. That is a great story. I love that so much. Got, got to be scra- uh, scrappy and, you know, because you're never going to be able to outspend the big guys. So you better figure out a different way in which to cre- create that uh, buzz about it. And, um, you know, and sometimes you have to spend money, sometimes you don't, but it's more that um, positioning. And I was I was going to say um, one other thing about um, knowing your numbers, if that's okay. Please do. Um, so, you know, knowing your numbers is so important because for the most part, either you're going to get a loan, you're going to have to raise, you know, capital along the way, whatever it may be. And so um, one thing no one told me at the start, and I think it's so important because it fundamentally influences that roadmap. What is your exit plan? Is it legacy and creating something for your family to pass down? Is it, I want to build and sell in five years? Is it, hey, I just really looking for a recurring revenue stream and, you know, someday I sell it, great, but really it's just, I want, this is going to be my income, you know, to, for our lifestyle. It's going to change and you have to be willing to iterate over time, but kind of know what the direction is you're heading because it really impacts so much of the things that you have to do along the way because you know I've had to raise capital being an inventory business and it's like that's a really hard thing and so having a a strong understanding of your market gap your numbers and being able to you know convey that unique selling position and you know what your exit plan is, because if you're trying to get a loan or exit and, you know, sell the company, you know, either of those, they want to know what your plan is. And I think a lot of people go into business, not really having that exit defined. Yes. And it goes back to knowing if you're a hobby or a business, a hobby may not have an exit plan because they're just thinking, I'm just going to do this when I want to do it because I love to do it. But if you want to build a business, you need to think about that exit plan. Is your business sellable? Can you build this? And, and listen, no one's going to buy a business if they can't see the numbers, right? So, <laughs> so, so true. Do you live in France? Do you speak French? Um, I lived there for a year and a half uh, when I was developing everything. Now I just go a couple times a year, depending on stages of production. I have phenomenal team there. And sadly, I'm not completely fluent. It's such a hard language. And I, I joke that things really got lost in translation, because when you think about smell, flavor, texture, all the things that you describe with uh, taste and, and uh, it's uh, really did get lost in translation of like, okay, well, I want it to s- smell and this like that. And you're like, huh? Like, it was just, so it was sort of funny, like how much English I ended up having to use with my team in order to get exactly what I wanted. I took, I took French in high school and it was a nightmare. I don't know. I don't know how I graduated. <laughs> I think the teacher felt sorry for me. Like I have no idea. Here's the thing. If you're wanting to start a business, you need to know your numbers and you need a plan. When you have a plan, you have freedom. That's why I created a free resource to help you figure out what you need to make financially to make your business profitable. The four numbers every business owner should know. It's tempting to close your eyes and avoid looking at your finances because you're scared you won't like what you'll see. Ignorance is not bliss. To make your business profitable and sustainable, you need to know your numbers. To get this free resource, head to ZimmermanPodcast.com slash know your numbers. That's ZimmermanPodcast.com slash know your numbers. This past year on my vision board, I had one word written in big, bold letters, gratitude. I've built my whole year around that one word, and it changed my life for the better. This week's show is airing the Tuesday before Thanksgiving, and I'm celebrating by showing my gratitude to you. How? I'm giving you a one-time code for 50% off anything or everything in my shop at ZimmermanPodcast.com slash thankful. Contract templates, webinars, the booking reboot, whatever you want, it's yours for 50% off. Just use code thankful at checkout. Just like my attitude of gratitude, this code isn't limited to Thanksgiving week. It'll work one time only, anytime, any day. Celebrate with me and grab all those resources you've been wanting. Again, go to ZimmermanPodcast.com slash thankful and use code thankful. I just have curiosity questions from a business perspective. Do you rent the vineyard? How does this work? 
Um, I buy grapes from various growers. And so, you know, I grew up in agriculture. Um, a lot of my family was in farming. And so I was like, I have zero desire to ever go in farming because one, it's a thankless job Two, a lot of uh, just inherent business risk because if you have a bad crop year and stuff. So I was very intentional. A part of my business strategy is sort of that make versus buy. Do you do it all yourself or do you work with experts and various things that are doing aspects already? And so I chose the latter. So I uh, purchase grapes from various growers around France. Um, I have a phenomenal production partner in Burgundy, France, and they handle all of the winemaking attributes from, you know, uh, getting the grapes through to, you know, sending the bottles to uh, the U.S. And so I'm kind of the orchestrator, if you will. It's like, uh, you know, as a female consumer, you know, uh, I'm the core demographic really, and 80% of bubbles is per- purchased by females. And so it's like, all right, uh, here's the taste profile that I'm looking for. I did, you know, it's my blend, my brand, my trademark, but they do all of the operational uh, backend for me. So what happens, because there's going to be, just like with any industry, there's trends and rosé seems to be, you know, a big trend or that's what a lot of people are drinking. So what do people do? Is there a certain grape that now everyone's after? So then it's supply and demand. So that grape is more expensive. How does all that work? Um, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, it, most things come back to the simple laws of supply and demand. And so uh, in the last few years, the U.S. rosé market has exploded. And so that's definitely uh, put pressure on the vi- vineyards to be able to have enough uh, volume in which to supply um, for you know, the, fr- the French wines. In the U.S., there's a lot of rosé. Do they just start planting a bunch more? Well, it usually takes five to seven years for um, vines to be viable. I mean, some are three or four, but it's not. It's not like Coca Cola where you're like, okay, we need more. Let's uh, like create more. That is the balance point with um, wine, uh, certainly, because it's it's the real estate. It's how long it takes to come to fruition, and um, it's you know a longer term vision. But uh, definitely, they've started utilizing some. Other grape varietals, uh, sourcing from some alternate uh, locations as well, and and it's hard. Like, you, do you want to jump on the bandwagon because there's a trend, or you're like, oh, it's oversaturated, or do you feel like, um, most importantly, that you could still fill a gap? So, uh, Le Grand Cortage, the sparkling wine I launched because of you know the gap I saw in the price palette packaging. Uh, Très Chic Rosé, we only launched in this last year, and same approach really, um, whereas that the font um, is much bolder. So it really grabs the eye on the shelf. The capsule's a dark navy, which you don't see. And so it was harder to be as competitive with the rosé because there's a flood of new products. But I was like, what makes us visually stand out on the shelf? And what price point do I need to fill in which to be successful in the category, hopefully. And so, you know, whereas that, again, it's sort of that reverse engineering. It's like, all right, I think we need to be $14.99 to $15.99 on the shelf if the market leaders are Whispering Angel and Miraval and they're uh, $19.99 or $24.99. Um, so it's like, how, how do we have enough of a gap below that price to compel somebody to want to buy us? That Trey Chic bottle is really beautiful. It's classy. It's beautiful. It's timeless. And that is the kind of thing you want to give. Like when you are invited over to someone's house or if someone just got engaged or you want to take a gift to somebody, like that is what a beautiful price point. And then it's that light pink rosé. I, I love that so much better than those those dark. I don't know if that's just me being like snobby about it, but I want you to set the record straight on this. And I'm guilty of this, by the way, I am guilty of this because I do love me some wine, but I often think that if it's more expensive, it's going to be better. So why do I think that? Why do people think this with wine? I think I've had really inexpensive wine before, you know, maybe from a box in college that, um, you know, gave me headaches. And so for, for whatever reason in my head, I've also had really, really good bottles of wine, um, that did not leave me with a headache. And so what, how can I get on board with this kind of in-between price and feel good about it? Well, um, the psychology of price is widely uh, studied and whether it's jeans or wine or, you know, multitude of products, uh, there definitely is a perception that, uh, you know, they've done blind studies. It's like, oh, you know, I tasted this and like, oh, this is a hundred dollar bottle of wine versus 10. It's like, oh my God, this one's amazing. And, you know, they wax on forever about price and why it's so much better. And in reality, it's the exact same 
wine is the $10 one, but suddenly price made people think uh, differently. Or conversely, they'll uh, intentionally flip price and you might have a really well-scoring wine that's very expensive and uh, they'll pretend that it's a cheap one in like a focus group and um, you know, people's perception of the higher priced wine was just so much higher. And so for whatever reason, um, there's this um, innate uh, trigger about price and um, you know, value perception or quality and things like that that comes into uh, play. But, you know, for me, when you look at um, in the U.S., a lot of people know very little about wine and that's okay. It's like there's 300,000 wines or something like that on the market, but it's like, oh, I like a Cabernet or I like a Chardonnay. And outside of a handful of brands, most people don't know very much. And the majority of wine is still purchased under $10 for like kind of your everyday wine. So I wanted like to create something that was approachable, affordable, versatile, elevates the everyday um, and isn't going to break the bank. And I kind of use that ATM mentality of like, you know, if it's under 20 people don't like, okay, I pulled out one bill from the ATM and it doesn't um, psychologically register as too expensive. Even if they come in and only wanted to spend 10 or 12, it's like, okay, well I'll spend 17 or 18 and not feel bad about it or feel like, oh, I'm like this, I'm overindulging and things like that. And so part of my positioning was very intentional about that price point of, of creating exceptional value perception without being perceived as too cheap or too expensive that people can only buy you occasionally. It's the perfect price point for those people who, you know, might need it on a weekly basis or a couple, couple bottles a week, you know, that's the perfect <laughs> price point for that, right? Um, so when I go to a wine store and I see a bunch of different bottles of wine and there is yours at $18.99 and then let's say there's another one and it's $59.99 and they look, you know, they're both in the same color and they're beautiful. Is the other one really making that much more profit or are their expenses higher? So at, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, let's use a lot of the, you know, big champagne houses or something. It's like they... Um, have owned their properties for a few hundred years. They don't have the expense of the real estate or things like that. So a lot of spirits brands or wine brands are, you know, frankly, just outside. I mean, you look at a Louis Vuitton, what is a Louis Vuitton cost, what it does versus, you know, something else that you just buy at, you know, Macy's or Nordstrom's for 40 bucks, right? So qualitatively, quantitatively, it doesn't make sense sometimes. So it's just that psychology of price and what people are willing to pay. And usually the high-end brands, their margins and markups are insane comparative. So they're making obviously more on a dollar basis than a um, we are, but on a growth uh, margin basis, theirs is significant because they've already invested in yeah, the infrastructure and they have, they benefit from the economy as a scale. And so I think what's really interesting to re to understand about uh, small companies and emerging, you know, small mid cap companies, um, their operating expenses, their, uh, um, SGNA, when you look at their financials, they're having to spend a huge percentage of their budgets in which to grow and to try to reach scale, but they're not efficient yet. And so it's really difficult for small, small brands to compete against the big guys, one, because they don't have the margins and two, their sales, their marketing, um, the finance and admin, all the backend stuff is very expensive because they haven't reached scale. Like, you know, it's not unusual for a young brand to be north of 50% versus a highly efficient company. They may be at, you know, 20, 25%. So imagine if their uh, overall um, sales, marketing, things like that, is only 20-25% of their overall versus um, other brands are at 50, how hard it is for them to be, you know, the young brand to be competitive. Oh, that all makes so much sense. Thank you for explaining that. Do you, you, we said in the beginning that you're kind of a serial entrepreneur. Do you have plans to do something else? Do you have an exit strategy of your own? Do you think that this will be something that you do forever or do you think that you will pivot into something else? And let me ask this question. If you do, or if one would one day decide to be done with this chapter, right? Do you try to sell it as it is, or do you go to a bigger house, a bigger brand and see if they want to take it on as well? I often think about uh, Bethany Frankel and her skinny girl beverages and how 
that just all kind of lined up really beautifully. She was able to keep her brand, but it, it was a smart deal. But then let a bigger house take over the alcohol portion. And I just wonder what your thoughts are about, you know, your own exit strategy. Well, um, when I was saying earlier, like, oh, be clear about your exit plan. Um, it's like when I started this, I was thinking, oh, recurring revenue stream. And, you know, it's a great lifestyle business, though. I, I thought it's a crap load of work and uh, far more uh, labor intensive and complex than I ever really um, imagined. But I wasn't thinking I would have to raise as much capital as I uh, did. And so, you know, we've, we've raised over $3 million to date. I'm in the middle of a capital round. And so partly my comment about know your exit plan um, is influenced by my own, you know, personal, you know, realities in this journey and what's become. And so, you know, when you're taking on capital, the expectation by investors is you either need to, um, recapitalize and pay them back in five to seven years typically, or there needs to be an exit. So I wasn't looking to sell, but then you realize the gross realities of this industry. It's like down the line. And, you know, you think about um, the deal that Bethany Frankel got where she remained as creative director and is getting to build brand and yet has this huge sales force and team and to be able to really realize your vision. You know, there's obviously some, you know, merits in that and it's exciting. You give up a lot of, you know, controls, but you, if you kind of um, separate the ego and I want it to be mine versus, oh, I really want to bring this to life in the full vision that I had imagined. And it's like there's it's a very personal decision, but I do think that there's a lot of opportunity of thinking about that strategic acquisition or you know, where they take a, a position in your company and invest and maybe they become the sales and marketing arm. And so I do think it's uh, pretty interesting as you evaluate those longer term decisions and you think about both a national as well as a global footprint for a brand like ours, which is yeah entirely possible at, at this stage of given the size and scale that we've reached. It's like, okay, what's next? And what do I need to have as a team versus if I uh, morphed under another organization, what it could become? Hmm. What do you think, let's say the whole wine industry went belly up tomorrow and you had to do something new? What do you think <laughs> your new business would be? What, what are you interested in right now? Um, my my uh, love of architecture and real estate combined with my love of food and wine, I think my um, what really would feed my soul, I'd love to have a like chateau or something, or, you know, this beautiful property on a lake or an ocean and have a boat or whatever, and be able to really do retreats. Like I'd love to be able to have, uh, retreats for women, entrepreneurs, um, yeah, things like that, which are really, um, to amplify and up level and think about the, the true life that you want. And our, um, philosophy on every bottle is, embrace life, dream big, accept all invitations. And it really comes down to kind of that live joyously and creating moments um, um, that sort of feed you at the core. And so I think if I, um, if time and money weren't an issue, and if I could parlay my original career and, um, you know, architecture and development with wine and be able to have these beautiful spaces that bring people together to, you know, celebrate life, constantly learn and grow and have like an educational component that you know, really helps to elevate the everyday and help people think about you know, improving you know, life, business, all those. I think that would be sort of the perfect um, combination of um, both of my worlds. Well, I want to sign up for that retreat if and when it happens. And I want to buy some wine. So tell me right now, how we, how do we get your wine? How do we get it in our, in our, in our refrigerator at our doorstep? How do we make this happen? Uh, you can find us online with legrandcortage.com, which is L-E and then grand, G-R-A-N-D, and cortage, C-O-U-R-T-A-G-E.com. So uh, certainly check out the beautiful website, a great uh, Instagram, and, um, you know, it's... Uh, and we're coming, uh, we're now across the U.S. in 47 states. And, um, you know, it helps if you ask your local retailer and um, look for us in, you know, supermarkets over the, you know, coming uh, year. So we're starting to load into a lot more of the grocery stores. So it's an exciting time for the brand. Are you, are you in Arkansas? I'm probably the one state you're not in. <laughs> we are not there. But it's funny, I actually used to live in Arkansas. 
<laughs> well, did you really? I did. No Which, one uh, used to live in Arkansas that I talked to. Are you kidding? That's where you live. Conway. <laughs> Shut up. Is that where you live? Yes. Oh my god! Not serious. <laughs> I did. Well, we'll have to. I, I didn't know that, and I know, uh, but uh, we'll have I'm to talk offline. I'm sitting right now. I'm sitting here in Conway, Arkansas. <laughs> Small world. Get out of town. Okay, so there's hope for me to go to Thailand. Okay, good. Like um, okay, so I have a final question, and you may have already kind of answered it, but um, I always like to end with this one. If you had Oprah's money, okay, so billions of dollars, and you had to spend it on something totally selfish for yourself, what would you spend it on? <laughs> like what would oprah do instead of what would jesus do what would oprah do <laughs> but that's the thing it has to be selfish because people always are confused with this question and it makes so much sense to me because i think what you what your answer is shows really like what really motivates you in your life i would say really my my answer is much like um or parlays on, um on what i was just saying about the chateau it's like i like personally would love to have this amazing uh, property that brings people together to truly, you know, celebrate that spirit of like the French spirit of the joie de vie, the joy of life. And um, I would love to have uh, be able to do the retreats and think about, you know, it's like whether it's female retreats that are about empowerment, if it's entrepreneur retreats of like, how do you create, you know, seven figure business? Uh, I even think it'd be amazing to be able to bring this to a concept of retreats and entrepreneurialism to um, high school and colleges and think about really uh, inspiring and motivating the next generation of um, leaders and what it takes. Cause it's like, Oh, you think of all these things that you and I are discussing today. If you could bestow that at a, and know a lot of what we know today at a much younger age, just, um, how much more successful, you know, people would be in life and in business and not stress themselves out so much. And so I actually, my, my grander plan of, you know, sort of what's next, um, beyond cartage is, you know, things that are about really, um, uh, approaching life with intention and uh, creating this true life that uh, you want. And it's like, and I think it's so much, it's reframing because a lot of times like, I have to do this. And it's like, instead of I have to do this, instead say, I get to do this. And it's like coming back to, you know, what's an alignment, what, uh, um, how do I make a difference? And so, you know, it's uh, mine, I think is, is more of um, giving back more and but also feeding my own soul of like I just love you know bringing people together and you know sharing in life <laughs> so long answer to your question but no I love it and I think yeah it's it you know the the more years we live on this on this earth that sounds so cheesy but it's true the more the more years we live the more wisdom we gain and the more it becomes about impact and and helping others and teaching what we know right so mm -hmm. I love that Tanya, I can't thank you enough for being here. I feel like I've learned so much about just your industry, your business, and your path. So thank you for sharing with us how important knowing your numbers are and annual planning and all of those good things. Thank you so much for being here with us. Thanks for having me, and it was so much fun. If you loved what you heard today, even if you liked it a lot, you should subscribe and leave a review. We'll see you back here next time in the Zimmerman podcast.